Are you worried about the fate of student loan repayment programs like public service loan forgiveness? Well, you should be because who knows what the future holds unless you can actually tell the future. And in that case, I think we need to be friends. Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights. Just you, me, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Neiman, and welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for being here. It's an honor. Every time you guys push play and subscribe, I'm just happy you guys are here enjoying the ride. Well, this time we're going to be digging into the details of student loan repayment programs like dun, dun, public service loan forgiveness. You know, that program that sort of sounds too good to be true after 120 qualifying payments. Well, we've talked a lot about it on the show. And what you might not know is the part that could really do some damage if you're unaware of their impact on you. And that is why I have brought on student loan expert, Dr. Ben White, a neuroradiologist and author of Medical Student Loans, A Comprehensive Guide. Awesome book, by the way, if you guys haven't checked it out, totally should. And it's free to download on his site, benwhite.com. But we talk on the viability of public service loan forgiveness and the many, many downfalls of the existing loan repayment servicers. Wait, right? Not only are they there to take my money, but they can potentially screw up my paperwork? Oh, yeah. That happens, my friends. And as Ben and I discussed, the aftermath isn't pretty. So I apologize for the clickbaity intro because there's not too much to worry about with those in public service loan forgiveness. But let's get up to speed with Ben. Ben, what's going on, man? Thanks so much for being on the show. Glad to be here. We got him. We got him on the show. This is I'm so excited. Nerding out here. Ben writes out of his self-titled blog, benwhite.com, and he's got a really killer book. And he just told me that he updated it because I thought it was called Medical Student Loans, A Comprehensive Guide, but it is now called... There's that one. And there's also Dealing with Student Loans, A Comprehensive Guide. So there's two books written uh, very similar. One is for doctors and med students, and one is for everybody else. And both of them are totally free as a download from my website, benwhite.com slash student loans. Yeah. And how long have you been blogging? I've been blogging since 2009. So it's about over 10 years, which is I think infinity in internet years. Yeah, pretty much. You're like 8,000 years old. Good job. <laughs> well, Ben it nerds out a lot on student debt as well as we do here. And so I thought who better to have on to kind of talk about PSLF and the viability, the health of the whole system itself. And so let's just talk in like, I guess I've talked about it a bunch, but just for a high level, just tell people what PSLF or public service loan forgiveness is and how they should be able to take advantage of it. So PSLF is this really amazing on paper, uh, theoretically. On paper. Yeah. Program the government created to try to encourage people to go into service uh, for the public in the nonprofit sector. So the moral of the story is if you make your monthly payments based on your income base repayment plan for 10 years while working at a qualifying employer, the entire remaining balance of your loans would be forgiven tax-free, which sounds amazing. The downside is that the administration of that program leaves something to be desired, and it's in the news a lot because it has a lot of drama about it. A ton of drama, right? So a ton of drama. Yeah. So it's 120 qualified payments that don't need to be successive. So if you ended up going to private practice and coming back, you're okay. 
just keep really good records. You have to work for a 501c3 and be in an income-driven repayment. So it's, you know, IBR, repay, pay. And we see this a lot, so clickbait headlines, right? PSLF, 99% rejected or, or whatever they're saying. And we get this all the time with clients asking, obviously, you know, it's like the titles, the clickbaits, they're, they're there for a reason. But let's talk on people are really worried that PSLF isn't going to be around. People are petrified. And I get uh, snarky Twitter comments and emails all the time from people who think there's a gigantic government conspiracy from Betsy DeVos, the Department of Education secretary, and Trump and how everyone's going to have that rug pulled right out from underneath them and just end up devastated 10 years in with a mountain of debt and nothing to do. And I think it's all basically unsubstantiated or at least a gross misreading of the reality, but it's extremely common. Like the 99% rejection rate that it was in the news, New York Times and NPR and everywhere was a huge news story that keeps having echoes over and over again. It just won't stop. And at the end of the day, that story was basically that people who didn't read the fine print applied for loan forgiveness did not qualify, and we're told they didn't qualify, which means that everything worked as expected. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And so the Department of Education released a PSLF report in June, and I had gone over this report with Robert Farrington. Uh, he's been on the show quite a bit. He's also the co-founder at Loan Buddy with me. We went through, and, and I wanted to give him credit because he actually did a lot of this heavy lifting, but I'd like to talk through the report a little bit with you and get some commentary if that's if that's good. Let's do it. So in June, they have now told us that 1,216 people have received loan forgiveness under the program. So that's a lot better than the original 96, right, that we first read about. That's right. <laughs> but out of the number of people who've actually put in applications, there was still over 100,000 people that were rejected. Yeah. So the big issue, one of the big issues with this process is that the government has uh, several loan servicers they work with. They're basically private companies that the government has contracted with to handle the taking of payments of all student loans. And so the one they chose to handle every single PSLF application is something called FedLoan, which is a terrible company. They're all terrible companies as far as anyone can tell. They're all terrible. And so FedLoan is incredibly inept and for reasons that are complex that probably are not worth fully getting into, they do a really bad job counting. They do a really bad job sending letters. They do a really bad job doing things that basically are their job. They're in fact being sued uh, by several different states, including New York recently just sued them again for being um, awful at their job. And so as a result, there's two problems. One is that FedLoan is doing a bad job counting and, and handling applications. And one is that people did a bad job reading the fine print because they didn't, some of them didn't actually even know what the fine print was because the program was released without all the details in place. And the other issue is that when Congress passed something called the Temporary Expansion Program, it's a TEPSLF, T-E-P-S-L-F, the way they figured out to do it, the way Fedline figured out to implement it was that you had to apply for PSLF, be denied, then reapply for the Temporary Expansion Program, which basically had let people who picked the wrong repayment plan. So if you picked graduated or extended plans, you didn't qualify originally, but Congress passed a $300 million expansion to help those people get forgiveness. The only way to get it is to be denied the first time, reapply, have FedLoan handle it. And so no matter what, if you're in that situation, you have to go through this arduous, you know, year-long Armageddon type process where you're just biting your nails, hoping FedLoan's going to take care of you. And they probably won't the first time. There's no denying that they've done a terrible job administering the program. Yeah. They, they probably won't the first, the second, or the third time. Uh, as you go through this. And, and, I, and I joke about it, but it's the truth, unfortunately. I mean, you're calling into a giant call center. You're talking to someone 
who is not actually really experienced, is not an expert in that. This is their job to answer the phone and try to navigate from a very high level what your student debt situation is. And I would never take advice from that person. And usually if you get bad advice, which you probably will, you need to call back and talk to someone different or ask for a supervisor. I mean, there's there's all sorts of reasons why we're kind of in this mess. But I thought it was interesting that in that PSLF report that they put out, that they gave us some of the rejection reasons. Not all of them, but 55% of the people who were rejected. So out of that 100,000, 55,000 people were rejected because they didn't even have 120 payments. Theoretically. So the caveat to that is that FedLoan really is bad at counting. Some of those folks may have thought they hit 120, but if you don't submit your ECF, your employment certification form annually, that's where FedLoan updates your qualifying payment count. And so you may be totally off or they may be totally off from the reality. And if you don't do it continuously, you would never know that they might be like, oh, you only have 45. You only have 60 because they didn't count your $0 payments when you were an intern, or they didn't count the fact that one of your jobs didn't sign the form properly. And therefore they didn't count any of those payments. You know, So there's an issue there with the fact that FedLoan doesn't update that information very actively or very quickly. So people are constantly sending in on you know, that, I, that I talk to where they'll say, I submitted my ECF, the number is way off, what should I do? And the answer is you can submit for manual recount. It will take months, maybe even a year. A year is what their wait time is now. Yeah, a year about some people will then will contact the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau Ombudsman, which is a organization that the Fed's created to help deal with these issues. And that person may help fight on your behalf. But no matter what, that process sucks. <laughs> and so people definitely end up high and dry all the time. So some of those folks probably did think they hit 120. They just didn't hit 120 according to Fed loan. Yeah. And we see it all the time. I I was joking with Casey in prep telling her, Hey, I'm, I'm excited. I'm talking to Ben tomorrow and we're going through this. And we were joking that we've only had one client actually out of hundreds of people we worked with. One person had everything correct. And it's because they had fought Fed loan for years to get everything correct. Most of the time. And we have clients that have done really the right thing that have gone through fun, filled out all their paperwork, but then didn't stop and think like, Oh, let me go through and make sure even just the dates lined up. So I use the example, we had someone that went through three years of residency and then a one-year fellowship, but they only had like six payments or seven payments in their residency. And then they had like 37 payments in their one-year fellowship, right? Right. Which is obviously not possible. Now combined, it was the right amount, but even just some little detail like that is wrong and it will likely get rejected when they go through everything because then all of a sudden, FedLon wants to actually be accurate with their work and make sure like, oh, hey, we're forgiving 300,000 and to make sure this is correct. Exactly. So 55% didn't even have 120 payments, whether it was correct or not. That was the biggest reason. 24%, one quarter of those people got rejected because they didn't even fill out the form correctly. They are really stringent about the form. So I've definitely had people, readers who have emailed me or talked to me who have had things like that my employer didn't fill out the proper line for the signature or they didn't date it right or you know something as asinine as that and the whole thing they don't say like they don't tell you what the problem is half the time they just reject the form and put you back in limbo and you have to figure out what was wrong with it and it's just an agonizing process that definitely is not surprising again partially a fed loan problem probably yeah part of me thinks that they don't know why the form is done incorrectly so they don't give you the description of why because they're still trying to figure it out 
The other thing that they gave out was 15% didn't even have eligible loans. They were Fell or Perkins loans, something like that. That part is depressing, right? Because yeah. that there's no victory there, right? So if you had the wrong payment plan or the wrong payment counts, those are potentially fixable problems. If you have the wrong loans, you really are doomed. There's nothing you can do about that. You never qualify. You will never qualify unless the program is fundamentally changed. And so you're kind of just out of luck. Yeah, that part's really sad, but that's the case. But with so much information out there, it's hard for me to feel really bad because if you have a bunch of debt, you should be taking control over this. You should do the research. And I know it's hard. I know there's a ton of, you know, who to trust. I know there's scam companies out there. There's enough, I think, high quality information out there that you should be able to take control over this, especially if you're six figure. Our average client's 298,000. You have 298,000, you, you better be doing everything you can to understand the debt you signed on. I totally agree. I find it really disheartening how many people want to ostrich it, you know, just put their head in the sand and not think about these sums of money. But at the end of the day, people are willing to spend more time fighting the cable company than they are dealing with their student loans. And like the, the numbers here are just astronomical, right? A mistake can cost easily tens of thousands of dollars. And people are willing to just not engage in it. And I had attendings who were like, hey, I think I qualify. I'm like, mm, given your age, you probably don't. And then we talk about it and they never do. And, you know, you really should know this stuff. And I think most of the people who don't know about it, in fairness to them, when the program first got announced, it was never announced with the details in 2007 when it first came out or 2009 when they first announced it. And so people, I think, at that point thought they just would get it. Like if you just had the right kind of job, you would get it. And then later on, the full details came out and it kind of just missed the fact that it came out and people just did not re-update and look into it, which is their fault. I mean, don't get me wrong. We really... You got to look into it. But there were so many people who just thought they did. They thought it worked out. And they would, some of them called FedLoan, apparently, and talked about it. And people were like, you're on the right plan. Don't worry. And that was obviously only half the battle, right? And they, they were never told the correct information because apparently even FedLoan themselves didn't even understand the program very well until it got closer to the 2017 deadline, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, just a little bit of history. I don't like to bore people with too much on it, nerd out on it, but ICR was income contingent repayment was the only repayment until basically July of 2009. So when this rolled out, there was only ICR and it was 20% of your discretionary income and what you would essentially expect to pay over a 12 year repayment. That was it. And most of the time that was not the lowest option and people always want to pay the smallest amount. So then they were basically going to these graduate or extended repayments, which let them get the lower monthly payment, but they weren't qualifying for PSLF, even though they thought that they might, even if they had direct loans. So then IBR came out, I think it was July, I'm bad with dates, sorry, July 2009. And then we had pay, which was in 2013, that's as pay as you earn. And then we had repay in 2016. So these allowed you to pay that smaller percentage of your discretionary income and have your loans probably forgiven sooner and actually qualified for PSLF. So there was a lot of misinformation and it's unfortunate that this is the way that it's it's going. But I mean, this is obviously the, and not to get into politics, but this is the, a big topic of debate right now. I think in four years, it's going to be everything. Yeah. I don't think there's anything else is going to matter because all of these applicants that are going through, there's a big bubble coming. And it's in 2025, where 147,000 people are expected and eligible to actually get forgiveness. That's when everyone was taking out their loans, essentially in 2015 was the biggest. So I, this is just the 
tip of the iceberg, really. Oh, for sure. Because if you if you qualified for PSLF now, you basically would have had to learn about the program, realize what the rules were, probably consolidate your loans so that they all qualified, and pick a new payment plan at some point, either IBR or something else later on down the road. So people had to be really proactive in order to get all their ducks in a row. But starting from my graduating year, 2012, if you just pick the plan and stick on it, you would qualify. You know, every loan that I have is direct loan. Every loan that I had, IBR was everyone who I graduated with an IBR. 2012. And so you don't have to do anything special except for right, have the right employer at that point. So the effort required for someone to just get PSLF has gone down very, very low now. As long as you have the right kind of job, any recent graduate will qualify, which means that the numbers are going to go way, way up. It's going to be you know really dramatic. Pretty soon you're going to be seeing a lot of headlines two more years from now about neurosurgeons you know, who basically paid nothing because they were in residency for nine years in fellowship, who just got made a million dollars one year and got a million bucks of forgiveness the same year. That's going to happen. At some point, there'll be a great story about it. It's going to be really dramatic. There will be lots of hand-wringing, for sure. We're going to point back to this podcast because I'm happy you said it. Because right now, all of the clickbait headlines and all this trash that's being put out there is everyone's getting rejected. And it's because it was really hard. I mean, most people don't even know what ICR is. Listening right now, they, they don't because it's a horrible repayment option. I mean, it's terrible. It was terrible and they rolled it out. And that's why everyone was choosing the, the graduated and extended ones because it was better for them, even though it really wasn't because they weren't qualifying for PSLF. But like you said, you know, coming out in 2012, everything's direct. You didn't have Fell, Perkins, whatever. You had all direct loans. It's really easy. Fill out your paperwork and you'll be forgiven in 2022, I guess, in your case. Yeah, I mean, there are always like little details like, you know, you have to consolidate your Perkins loans in order to have them qualify and they got rid of the program anyway. But the core of it, the bulk of your loans, you know, in most cases would, would work out just fine. And so it's going to be uh, a lot of drama. Yeah. And one of the things that I did receive a question on was the concept of old borrower, new borrower. How are the, the laws being written now or being proposed? What does that actually mean? So I know you know a little bit about old borrowers, new borrowers. So let's go into that. That's a key distinction because when people, you know, every news cycle, there's always going to be Obama, Trump proposal will slash PSLF or, you know, mutilate it or whatever. And at the end of the day, the small print is for new borrowers. And so the, the bottom line is that when you get your loan, you sign a document called the MPN or the Master Promissory Note, which is a binding contract between you and the government for your loans. In that document, it says that PSLF is an option and it describes the program and also describes what payment plans are available to you that you can use. And so... It always says that that's what you get when you get your loan. So anything else that happens afterwards really can't affect that document. It's already been made. And so whenever they make a new plan or a new thing, they can always make it available to people who are older borrowers, but they can't just force it on older borrowers. They always say, if you're a new borrower as of 2018 or 2020 or whatever date they're going to propose the plan for, you'll be a new borrower. So a new borrower is usually basically somebody who has no loans that are old, as in they're not already existing borrower. And they have new loans starting at some new date. And so end the day, anyone who's in school already, definition is an older borrower and is therefore going to be grandfathered into anything that happens. And so people are always petrified about PSLF being changed. Frankly, it really can't be changed. Yeah, I mean, it, it can't. And I think the legal term is estoppel. But yeah, it's in the note that you've went through and did. So, you know, there was a lot of hype. There's a lot of things. The, the clickbaits, the behavioral piece of this is going to be insane do not make any knee-jerk reactions. Do not, I feel bad saying this because I generally think that they're great people working at these companies, but even the student loan refinance companies, 
that are going to use these things against you, right? They're going to say, why would you stick in this program when 99% of the people got rejected? Yeah. Right? Well, it's in their best interest to get you to think that. So then you refinance with them and that takes you out of the program. And once you're out of the program, there's no going back. Please remember that. That part I think is a big part of it too. I think that, you know, a lot of people who, even who are not the companies themselves, but if you're a writer in the space, you know, most of them, even myself have a relationship with those companies where you can get a kickback from refinancing. You can spread the love and share the money, but in the, the day people make money on those products. And so it is in your best interest, even if you're a blogger to write about it in a way that even if you don't say abandon the program, it's going to color the way you write about it. And so a lot of people, even people who you think would be unbiased, promote refinancing probably a little bit more than they have to because it makes sense for them to do so financially. And it's hard to avoid that conflict. Yeah. So I'll remove you out of this and I'll talk on my end and, and see this. That way there's no, uh, you don't feel awkward at all talking about it. But if you look at student loan refinancing companies, they have what's called an affiliate link. And there's affiliate links on financialresidency.com. There's pretty much affiliate links everywhere you look. They have to disclose it, a little advertising thing that says, hey, just heads up, you might, I might get paid for this. In return, you might get a bonus. So you look at all the sites that you probably know and love, and you might say, oh, look, if I click this link, I'm going to get $500 back on my loan. Well, what they're not telling you is that when you click the link, that person's probably also getting something. And a lot of the time, depending on volume, they will get a percentage of the loan. So let's just say you had $100,000 in student debt. You go to refinance, you get your $500 signup bonus. And that person, whoever site you were on, they might have received 1% of your loan balance as the commission or referral payment, you know, by bringing you there and you actually refinance. Sometimes it's done on a per loan basis. Maybe it's $300 per loan. Or if you have from 50,000 to 100,000 in loan balance, they get X amount. And then if you have 100,000 and more, they're going to get even more money. Well, guess what? When everyone's writing for doctors and you all have a ton of debt, they make a lot of money. So I know I have a giant guide and I have one referral affiliate link in there for credible. And if you go click through that, in theory, I would get paid for that. But there's, I think, almost 10,000 words on that. And I have one link right? I don't want you to refi unless you absolutely have to, right? Because the program is healthy. It's good. And the long-term health, you shouldn't even care about the long-term health. It's irrelevant. If you're already a borrower, if you're already in repayment, it shouldn't matter. But everyone gets, you know, just so caught up on that. It makes for a great headline. You know, at the end of the day, that's what gets clicks, we get eyeballs, eyeballs gets advertising or affiliate sales. And so people love to talk about it. At the end of the day, you're totally right. The long-term health is irrelevant to your personal situation. I think people are always afraid that the government can just do the wrong thing. It's actually been shown so far in recent history that when people try to do the wrong thing, if the Department of Education tries to do something wrong, they get sued immediately and they will lose when they are wrong. It's already happened. They got sued by the American Bar Association. Lawyers sued them and the lawyers won where it counted because the department was wrong. Uh, and so the estoppel effect was definitely in there and so it basically says that if someone is depending on a agreement you made with them, you can't change the agreement because they're relying on it. And so by definition, if you borrowed money with the understanding that you could get it forgiven in the right situation, they cannot remove that plan because that's how you base your decision. And so that would never hold up in court. They would lose so fast, in my personal opinion, as a non-lawyer uh, caveat, obviously, but history has shown that they will lose when they are wrong. And so I, I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about Fed loan being bad at servicing it. I'm worried about people wasting their time being frustrated and there's a lot of agony and emotional anguish. That's all true. But in terms of at the end of the day, if you fulfill the requirements, I firmly believe 
it will work out. Yeah. And I actually don't have the number, but the amount of attorneys that are going to be going for PSLF is infinite <laughs> is, is a lot, right? So if you're going to piss off any group of people, now I know there's teachers and physicians and all that that are mixed in and the government could piss a lot of those people off and they're probably not going to sue. You piss off a whole bunch of attorneys that just got educated. You're going to get sued a lot of times, right? Big class actions, all that stuff. So I think obviously they're going to do the right thing without getting too political. I am curious though, your thought on some of the well, one, they're going to, you know, free college for everyone. But the other side that actually, I'm just curious on your thought of this is if they just wipe student debt clean. I think the main issue with the student debt crisis, right, is that there's a twofold problem. One is the, the overall volume it is right now, which is too much, right? So we're kind of crippling a generation of Americans because they literally cannot do the things that their generation did before them, where they, you know, bought houses and had careers and had families because they're too busy servicing their debt. The other problem is how we got here in the first place. And so, I don't necessarily actually have a problem with people wiping people's debt away, but then we have to make some structural changes so that doesn't just happen again, right? So the issue with PSLF in general and a very and just unlimited federal loan programs for college and, and grad school, people can just kind of borrow as much as they need to, is that it's kind of a, been a blank check for universities to charge whatever they want to for higher education, even if there's no value to that degree, even if it has nothing to do with the overall cost of educating that student. And so at the end of the day, what we're seeing now is that people's tuition has skyrocketed, way outpacing inflation, and it's basically totally untenable in the absence of some of these programs. And so if we don't address that issue, if we don't pair up any kind of forgiveness, any kind of free college, any kind of anything with a structural change to kind of overhaul the financing of the system, then it won't work. That's so well said. I think we should end it there because that was beautiful. Well, Ben, thank you so much for being on. How can everyone find you? I know we talked about uh, benwhite.com and the amazing book that I think everyone needs to go read. But what else are you doing? What else is going on? Yeah, so it's benwhite.com. It's been that way since 2009. Uh, yeah, there's the two books. They're a free download. They are about 40,000 words. They are like actual books. They'll take a few hours to read, but they are free and totally worth it and really discuss a lot of personal finance that is relevant to loans as well. So I, I highly recommend them. I wrote them, obviously. I'm working on a third book right now to kind of hidden project. I'm also on Twitter at benwhitemd. And uh, mostly just trying to stay low on social media and mostly just work on the writing. I find that most times I, I get too involved in everything else. I just do less interesting and, and more prolific work. So I'm uh, just trying to get back to the blogging at a higher frequency. So please feel free to visit the site. Yeah, we'll make sure we link it and we'll put a little fun bio out there. And we'll link to you on social because I know you don't like to be on social as much. So we'll we'll link to it, but making sure that people go back to your site. So thank you so much for being on. It's really fun to hang out with you. Thanks for having me, man. Well, it's the time for the recap, and there are three takeaways I'd love for you to walk away with. Takeaway number one, as you've experienced, the government works with payment servicers that are pretty much awful. And the reason is that they're inept at making sure borrowers are just informed about the status of their loans, among probably thousands of other things. And you should know this. Why? Well, because it impacts you at very basic levels. And Ben drove this amazing point home for us. One of the big issues with this process is that the government has uh, several loan servicers they work with. They're basically private companies that the government has contracted with to handle the taking of payments of all student loans. And so the one they chose to handle every single PSLF application is something called FedLoan, which is a terrible company. They're all terrible companies as far as anyone can tell. FedLoan is incredibly inept 
for reasons that are complex that probably are not worth fully getting into, they do a really bad job counting. They do a really bad job sending letters. They do a really bad job doing things that basically are their job. Takeaway number two, if there's an issue with qualifying for PSLF when you have made your payments according to FedLoan, there are always ways to get help. People contact the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau Ombudsman to intervene. And this is what Ben had to say. The Consumer Finance Protection Bureau Ombudsman, which is a organization that the Fed's created to help deal with these issues, and that person may help fight on your behalf. But no matter what, that process sucks. <laughs> and so people definitely end up high and dry all the time. So some of those folks probably did think they hit 120. They just didn't hit 120 according to Fed loan. And lastly, takeaway number three, to qualify for PSLF nowadays really depends on a few qualifying factors. With time, you'll start noticing how most doctors are going to be getting their loans forgiven. It wasn't always that way, and Ben shared why the PSLF program is a better option. The effort required for someone to just get PSLF has gone down very, very low now. As long as you have the right kind of job, any recent graduate will qualify, which means that the numbers are going to go way, way up. It's going to be really dramatic pretty soon. You're going to be seeing a lot of headlines two more years from now about neurosurgeons you know, who basically paid nothing because they were in residency for nine years in a fellowship who just made a million dollars one year and got a million bucks of forgiveness the same year. For our quick community update, there is so much happening around here. Are you guys keeping up? I know that I barely am, and I'm the one leading the charge. It's been so much fun. Uh, we've got a new website redesign happening. And we've got a book release that's coming out January 15th. The new membership community financial fellowship will be launching in December. Thank you to like the 60, 70 people that have emailed already for that. It is amazing to know that there's that much enthusiasm without knowing even a ton of details, but I know that this is going to be amazing and so thankful you guys have reached out. And then we have a new Wednesday show with the physician philosopher. It has been pretty good stuff to actually be able to record those and have a co-host on that isn't my partner, Casey. And it's been really fun. But honestly, I'd love some feedback on what you like, but more importantly, what I can do to improve upon for our community. I want to make sure that I'm getting you guys all the content you want and are looking for. Remember, there's always ways to participate. So you can call in questions at financialresidency.com slash question, and hopefully I can highlight you here on air. We're always looking for more financial health assessments to be completed. So please go fill out the info at financialresidency.com slash form, and make sure to leave us a voicemail, and Casey and I will do our best to get that one on air as well. Next Monday, I'll be discussing real estate which is, as you can probably tell, one of my favorite subjects because I've been investing in it for basically ever. And you're going to learn a ton from the show because I have Chad Carson, aka Coach, on to dig into the details of investing in real estate. And it's going to be super fun. So have a great week and I will see you guys on Wednesday. Cheers. Oh, wait, it's time for that disclaimer. I know you don't want to hear it, right? It's not the best and most fun to listen to, but in reality is, I've got to tell you because you need to listen to it. It is extremely important. It's great to give you all sorts of perspective on personal finance matters, but I can't really give you specific information without your data in front of me. And even if it is in front of me, like it is for the Friday financial health assessments, 
say that three times fast, I still only know what you have recorded and sent in and that is definitely not all the details. So instead of running around with what you learned here, be sure to reach out to me or consult someone who can get to know you personally.